Beyond the, Beyond the Headlines. This is World Insight. Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tianwei. From record box office earnings to bustling tourist attractions, the Chinese economy was off to a strong start in the year 2024, many analysts believe. Thanks to the burgeoning ice and snow tourism industry in Harbin, the capital city of China's northmost Heilongjiang province, welcomed more than 3 million tourists and racked up tourism income of more than 820 million US dollars in a three-day New Year holiday. Growth rebound is also on track as the People's Bank of China vowed to support steady growth, high-quality development, and the Yuan's internationalization in the year 2024 in a recent Beijing work conference. So what are the new opportunities and challenges for the Chinese economy this year? How is it related to the rest of the world? And what are the external risks that China's economy is facing now? Let's ask our panelists. For more discussion on the Chinese economy, joining us is Bert Hoffman, professor at the East Asian Institute of National University of Singapore, former country director for China from the World Bank. In Jakarta, Ibrahim Rahman, senior research associate at Indonesia Financial Group Progress, or IFG Progress. In Beijing, last but not least, Xiao Yanzhang, chair professor of finance an associate dean from PBC School of Finance from Tsinghua University. Welcome to the three of you and Happy New Year. Talking about the Chinese economy, Professor Zhang, you are right here on the ground. I know this is a challenging time. People are looking at the prospect of the transition of this economy. Your general assessment. Uh, I, I can see my friends. Uh, my students, my colleagues, and uh, we're at the beginning of the new year. A lot of people are, are wondering what's going to happen in the next one year. So um, a lot of people are worried about are there going to be more uncertainties in the coming year. I, I relatively, I am very confident about you know where this economy is going and uh, whether we can do well in the year of 2020. Let me just share uh, very briefly of what I think. You know, it's um, let's think about you know our country as a very big country and a very important contributor to the global economy. You know, it doesn't matter how we look at it, right? China contributes to a very major part of GDP of the whole world. All right. Look, the, the most recent data. Uh actually show a reasonable stabilization of the Chinese economy. The IMF came out with a preliminary 5.4% for uh, uh, 2023. Uh, their projection, which is now outdated, is 4.5 is for, for this year. But th those are reasonable numbers given what China has gone through. Uh, first of all, COVID and the aftermath of COVID. Second, a major restructuring of the economy. And people underestimate what has really happened in terms of uh, the, the the property sector, which was a big part of the economy. It's still a big part of the economy, but far less than before, and it's not growing. That's, of course, a drag on growth. But at the same time, there's been a major reallocation of growth towards manufacturing, towards services. Uh, we discussed 
previously uh, a little bit the Harbin Festival and, and, and the Shanghai Festival of Tourism is rebounding and that's giving quite a bit of growth. If you look at the composition of growth, consumption actually now plays a fairly big role mm -hmm. in driving growth. Mr. Rahman, from your perspective, both China and Indonesia emerging economies uh, sharing uh, challenges and opportunities all at the same time. Your assessment of the Chinese economy from a regional perspective. Professor Hoffman has mentioned before that for decades, China's economy has been very dependent on the booming of, of real estate as sector, which is of course supported by the growing of population growth. And for that, the housing market has created a lot of jobs. And in China, it has served as place to store wealth for, uh, to store wealth for China's growing middle class, and as well as source for local government to get revenue from land sales. But as we know, um, currently the home, you know, home prices have been slumped and it has been denting Chinese household saving and confidence as the government tries to transition from, you know, try to diversify the source of growth, not only from investment in physical capital, but also in tourism as also you, you already mentioned. But I also echo what uh, Professor Hoffman mentioned that Currently, there is a tendency of less confidence as there is, you know, Chinese family are sending money overseas, which is, you know, you know, sending a sign of worry about the future uh, uh, country, economic and political future, I think. Mm -hmm. But as, as the superpower of the economy, China is still very, very important in driving regional growth and regional economic activities. Professor Zhang. Uh, I'm sure recently you've been bombarded if you look at the short videos uh, that has been pushed to consumers uh, recently in China uh, about the uh, local tourism development, especially in Harbin and Heilongjiang province in northeastern part of China, the Rust Belt, as they say. How do you <laughs> see these kind of enthusiasm from Chinese uh, uh, you know, consumers to travel within the country to some place that they have never been to or they have heard of a lot yet never really have decided earlier to go, um, Professor Zhang. You know, I watched some of the short videos myself. <laughs> you know, it's a very festival-like. You know, we look at that, you know, okay, oh my God, people can do so many fun things in the snow, you know. Uh, I, I actually, I was tempted to go myself. So just so you know, that it is a big deal right now in, in China. So as an economist, when I look at this, I actually, I feel very happy about this. And the reason for this is, number one, you know, Kimi, as you mentioned, that if we compare the numbers uh, of this year to last year and, and a few years before, obviously we're out of the COVID-19 and, and people start to show that we wanna go out and have fun, right? And, and both of the uh, uh, birds and women mentioned earlier, you know, one key indicator is consumer confidence. Yeah, we have to have the, you know, we have to have the energy to have fun and then we are willing to spend the money and then we can, you know, uh, make the consumption to, you know, generate more power for the economy. So mm -hmm. from this point of view, I actually think you know, from, you know, when the economy is recovering, this is def definitely a innovation mm. that we should encourage. Mm. And Harbin obviously finds this thing that people want to go to spend the money 
and to energize the growth of the economy. I really think this is a pattern all the cities probably can learn something from it. And, and given the size of the economy, it's going to be huge. I really enjoy your analysis, Professor Zhang. Uh, go to you, Professor Hoffman. You know, it's not just uh, Harbin or northeastern part of China where the snow is the most well-known for the country, uh, but also in Shanghai, uh, where you uh, traveled many times to when you were working in China and later traveled to China on conferences. Um, I'm holding a book. Uh, it's actually one of the popular novels uh, these days, uh, which a popular TV program is based on. It's called Blossoms uh, Shanghai. Uh, now a TV program uh, is on, uh, uh, airing all over China. You see, these days in Shanghai, what is described in the TV series, the Fairmount Peace Hotel, you know, the oldest hotel in Shanghai, has become the most popular place for the young people now. Uh, they need to go there to show that they have seen the TV series and they want to show to their friends, they put them on the Chinese Instagram. So how do you see this kind of both reminiscence and enthusiasm of discovering and rediscovering history reflected through the, you know, the development of tourism and economy, Professor Hoffman. Well, you're making me all nostalgic. I was actually, <laughs> 30 years ago, I was in Harbin for the first time. I went back a couple of times, but I also was for the first time in Shanghai. And this was in the run-up to the uh, the third plenum of the, of the 14th Party Congress, i.e. Uh, the one that was chaired by uh, Jiang Zemin, and that, of course, introduced the socialist market economy. Look, this is a different stage. Uh, of, of China's economic development is far richer. Uh, it's literally 10 times as rich as we talk about. Uh, at that point, it was $1,000 per capita. Now it's uh, $12,000 per capita. So dramatic developments, a very different type of growth is necessary. And also, right, the market uh, uh, has been tremendously good for boosting China's growth, but there's also been downsides. And, and this, the current administration, from 2013 onwards, said, look, we, we, yes, we want the market. We want the market to be a decisive factor, but a regulated market so that it serves the people. Now, that's not so easy to make that adjustment from a, if you want a more unfettered market development from before to a more regulated market now. How much do you see, Professor Jiang and Professor Hoffman, local authorities to be innovative and enthusiastic in encouraging innovation of ideas in order to bring their local economies up despite of the period of time of economic transition China overall is going through. I, I do feel that the local government uh, over recent years, they have been very much, you know, they feel a lot of uh, challenges in terms of debt and liability. Um, and then, you know, the economy recovery has been not very smooth. It could be having some volatilities. So that's why, you know, a lot of uh, government officials, they express um, their worries about the growth of the local economy. So that is a fact, right? And, and, and the investors and the financiers, they also worry about the same situation. Mm -hmm. um, I, it, but I, what, I wanna make three points. Um, number one is, um, 
So the local government, um, they have this debt issues, and and it is hurting the uh, community stability. And and you know the central government is also very much aware of that. It's not something it's gonna go away overnight. Uh, it's going to take a, a period of time to figure out the solution and to deal with it. It's not you know I understand everybody wants to become better overnight, but it does take longer. Now that's the first thing. But even though it's difficult, it's still, you know, we have to be steady fast and we need to be confident and work on that. It's just not going away very quickly. And second thing is, uh, I believe both the central government and the local government have been trying very hard to solve the issue. When we talk about the uh, tourism in Harbin and, and the tourism in Shanghai, those local governments have already been trying to work on those issues. And then they come up with innovations. They want to spur the consumption. They want to attract people and contribute to local you know, budget and local income. All of those are very helpful starting point of improving local you know, liability issues. I think those are very helpful. That's, that's probably not going to be enough. But I think you know, I'm very happy to see that the local government are trying to be creative and solving problems. And so that's why I'm quite confident. And the third thing I want to mention is, and the, the, the central government, and as well as the whole community, we understand, you know, where I'm in Beijing, I, I think the whole community, we understand the difficulties faced by the local uh, government. And, and then if we, um, we worry about, we work on it. One of the reasons why that debt accumulated at the local level was because in the end there's too much demand on local governments given their revenues so they need either fewer demands on their spending or more revenues i tend to think that that uh, the latter is more important because local governments will need to do a lot more in in a more advanced society government services are going to be very important still many migrants that need to be absorbed into cities mm -hmm. that also require services so a lot of expenses uh, pension co pension costs that are fa uh, falling due at local level a lot that the local government is still facing so i believe that, that over time the government will need to rethink the intergovernmental fiscal relations and therefore get local governments a higher share as we know, it's not just uh, Harbin and Shanghai when it comes to these anecdote stories, but also, you know, Zibo as last year in Shandong province where they promote a barbecue. It seems that everybody go to Zibo for barbecue. Nobody knows why, but uh, just all of a sudden they become <coughs> a fad. Um, and also Xi'an, of course, with the Karikata warriors and all of the uh, interests of uh, history, uh, places of interest of history have become once again a shining star on Chinese map. So a lot of local authorities are trying to, you know, follow this footsteps and see what they can do right now for some immediate revival of the local economy. And that is the first step. But as both of you said, fundamentally, there needs to be more policies together uh, with interactions between local and the central level in order to work out with the best plan. Uh, let's talk about the real estate sector. You mentioned that at the very beginning, Mr. Rahman. Of course, uh, earlier Chinese economy was pretty much supported by the real estate growth, uh, the exports, uh, and the list that goes on. But right now we see uh, an investment in infrastructure mainly. But now we see that uh, 
uh, some of these areas are changing very fast given the geopolitical and geoeconomic factors going on in the world. So how much do you see uh, the pain that people need to bear with the real estate sector should not become after transition? As we know recently, the Central Economic uh, uh, Conference at the end of uh, last year suggesting uh, what they call uh, uh, to establish a more stable way of doing things first before uh, tearing down the old practices, so to speak, if I translate literally. Uh, this, of course, uh, related to also the real estate sector. So, Mr. Rahman, tell me more about your thoughts on how observing the real estate sector would help us understand the mentality of Chinese economy today and that of the policymakers. Right. It, it's quite you know, surprising that last year, uh, two of the largest uh, real, real estate uh, developers in China, uh, Country Garden and China uh, Evergrande, Evergrande uh, they both have been reporting uh, loss of quite substantial amount of money. And for us in regional Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and other ASEAN countries, um, the condition in China will be impacted as easily. Why? Because 25% of ASEAN exports or imports are coming from China. We have been working very, very closely even during the pandemic. And the share of investment uh, from China to ASEAN countries has been increasing dramatically even during the pandemic. Before it was only 2%, and in 2021 it's becoming 8%, which is the third largest investor in ASEAN countries just after uh, United States. And why, why is it important? Because um, when China is experiencing kind of challenge in, in obtaining you know, uh, the legacy of, of big GDP, then the impact will be lower trade, lower absorption of, of uh, ASEAN product and the other way around. And that will be, you know, prohibiting the fast transformation and the fast transition from China economy to ASEAN. Like just months ago, I was enjoying super fast train for the very, very uh, first time, the connecting you. Jakarta to Bandung. You know what, it's only 20 minutes 20 minutes and usually we took four hours yeah. to transport from from one city to another city which means that lowering potential benefit that ASEAN can learn from you know technology adoption from transformation in mm -hmm. in thinking in you know cultural adoptions technology spillover and so forth and so on so that will be long way off the goal but we'll see that I think China will be will be still performing well in next 2024. Now, Professor Hoffman, uh, we see, you know, the rhetorics and narratives uh, a lot of times about uh, China uh, or the Chinese economy have the tendency of going with uh, huge pendulums. How do you see a more balanced view and nuanced view about uh, China's economic uh, transition? When I started, I mentioned this, this 
quite remarkable transition that China has gone through in the next couple of years, moving away from an unsustainable real estate development. And I think the China is on its way to, to more healthier growth, which is probably going to be a bit lower than before COVID. It's not going to be the six, seven, eight percent that we had in the 2010s. Uh, and more in the order of, of around 5% uh, potential growth. If you look at it from an economist's point of view, that's very technical, but you, you say, well, well, China's potential growth is somewhere between four and a half and five in the medium term. Now, that, that hasn't really changed that much. Uh, there are more issues, though. We talked about geopolitics and geoeconomics. It's, it's an important factor. I don't think it plays that much of a role yet, except between the US and China. But it's creeping into into global trade. It's creeping into investment. Uh, FDI in China has gone down in part that reflects these geopolitical concerns, and that would be a negative for China's growth in the medium term. Not a decisive factor, but an important factor. And it would be damaging for the world economy. Of course, it would also be damaging for for China. In my view, I, I would still stick out my neck for four to five percent growth for the next decade, four and a half to five for for next year for this year. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm still pretty pretty optimistic in terms of uh, growth that can be expected from China. Mm. To understand the real nature of this transition, what might be the uh, most important elements of this transition, even though there are a lot of things in transition in China, that's for sure. Uh, meanwhile, have a nuanced view uh, about where the economies are heading for. Uh, Professor Zhang, your thoughts on this? Now, for this transition from a developing economy to slowly to a developed economy, I think there are three things we actually already covered today in the discussion, I think they're really, really important. Number one is to increase domestic consumption, increase domestic you know, uh, productivity. And number two is we have you know, a few troubled sectors. So we should focus on fixing the issues and focusing on the innovations from you know, the sustainability and the artificial intelligence and so on and so forth, all those uh, focus industries. And then number three, we talk a little bit at the end is I, I really am a believer of high quality of international collaboration. I think China has been doing quite well as a example for many of the developing economies. I think, you know, we have been working together with many, many countries in the past. It has been working pretty well for us. China, as well as all the other developing economies, I hope they can continue and they should continue. My final question for all of you, we see China policy-wise has been very much focused on, and the businesses are also reflecting that picture on what they call the four news, uh, mainly the new infrastructure, new energy, uh, new consumption, and also I would believe uh, a new technology. Um, how will these necessarily to bring more, more, um, new momentum to the Chinese economy? All right, well, th those are great, they're four news, I like that. Um, <laughs> I actually believe that, that on, on the supply side, China is moving very efficiently in that direction. I'm, I'm far more concerned about the demand side. And, and for two reasons, for two reasons. One is, uh, one part of the uncertainty that we started out with with the consumers is that there's, there's not enough jobs. 
There's not enough jobs. There's not enough wage. Wages are not growing at the point that uh, entry wages are declining, and that creates a lot of uncertainty. So that's that's and that's that undermines China's success, China's dual circulation strategy in the medium term. The second is. Uh, China's policies is increasingly debated internationally, whether that is playing by the rules. I think a lot of that is unfair, but a lot, the Europeans, for instance, are now looking into uh, electric vehicles and they say, well, it's all been subsidies and, and government policy that has now bringing this wave of electric vehicles to Europe. I tend to not agree with that, but there's less and less agreement on what the rules of the game internationally are. Mm. And I believe that is a, stress, a, a, a threat for China's growth in the medium term. So if you want the diplomacy, the international cooperation is as important as the domestic economic policy in this. And that's what I believe is, uh, is uh, hopefully that China will indeed address that and come to agreement, especially with Europe, hopefully with the United States. Mm -hmm. Thanks. I think um, China can also be concentrating on offshoring their activities outside of the country, knowing that domestically, you know, they're fighting with lower, uh, you know, uh, purchasing power, lower wage rate, as uh, Professor Hoffman just mentioned. And among other success stories, I think, is, you know, downstreaming, downstreaming of, you know, mining sector in many countries, not only in Southeast Asia, but, but also in Africa. And that's all the time we have for today. If you'd like to know more, you can search us, World Insight, from our YouTube channel. Follow us on X and Facebook. I'm Tianwei on behalf of the team. Thanks for being with us. <laughs>